Hi, I'm Natalia Swanson. And I'm Marie DeRocher. And this is season two of Conservators Combating Climate Change, a podcast about the intersectionality of sustainability and its implications for cultural heritage. This podcast is sponsored by the American Institute for Conservation's Emerging Conservation Professionals Network and is generously supported by the Department of Art Conservation at the University of Delaware in honor of Bruno Pouillot, an incredible mentor, educator, and human. So for this episode, Marie and I are delighted to share part of conversations we had with three heritage professionals, Peter Lopez, Dale Conkright, and Michael Henry about how sustainable thinking and awareness of the climate crisis affects ongoing collaborative efforts to preserve Georgia O'Keeffe's legacy in Abiquiu, New Mexico. Dale Conkright is a heritage conservator and head of conservation and preservation at the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum. He works alongside Agapita, or Pita Lopez, a native to Abiquiu who has held various roles in the Georgia O'Keeffe Foundation, including personal secretary to the artist herself. Our third guest, Michael Henry, is an engineer, architect, conservator, and educator who was brought on as one member of a large interdisciplinary team to conduct a comprehensive conservation survey of O'Keeffe's historic home and studio. A full list of the other core members of the team can be found in today's episode notes. So thank you all for joining us today. Um, We like to begin our conversations by asking one of our guests to tell us how they define sustainability. So Michael, can you share your definition and maybe how your understanding of the climate crisis affects your work in heritage conservation? Well, the classic definition that I like to refer to is the balance between social, economic, and environmental um, uh, arenas and uh, striking that balance. Um, And uh, I I have to say that I didn't start that way. Uh, When I was looking at sustainability at first, I was really focused on the environmental side because that was my entry point dealing with um, environmental management for buildings and how do we strike that balance between conservation and environmental management and the impact on the environment. But I've come to appreciate uh, the social side of it even greater over, over time. Climate change is the most challenging thing that we face when we think about preventive conservation, whether we're thinking about preventive conservation of the built environment or movable property. We are trying to look forward to what's going to happen without being able to rely on history to tell us what has happened. And we have to think in terms of what are the new enabling factors that will materialize or how existing enabling factors of deterioration will be amplified by climate change. And the climate change scientists they're in this mode of talking about probabilities and working from models, large scale mathematical models. And so what happens is when we look at the climate change uh, reports uh, for areas like the Southwest, they're they're not as geographically specific as we would like them to be. 
So then we have to sort of distill that. And then we have to go back and look at what's happened in the past and say, well, how would that track if we started to accelerate some of these or amplify some of these existing factors? And are these existing factors uh, the sorts of things that we're, we're hearing are going to be worse in the future? And, you know, this is real learning curve for us. Uh, and, you know, we can think about things like higher temperatures, faster drying rates, more intense rainfalls, so maybe more cycles of wetting and drying. How does that affect adobe? How does that affect adobe when it's under a, you know, a cement stucco? Those are, those are the things that we try to predict and say, here's what we have to be careful about in the future. And what can we do to mitigate the effects of those changes? And this is where we're, we're really fortunate at ABQ is we have people with personal histories at the site. So, you know, I mean, I, I get this because I've lived in the same place for 41 years, but you take families who have lived in a place for generations. And, you know, I can sit down with Peta and her brothers and get a sense of how things have changed and what that slow arc of change has been recognizing that it's going to turn up or turn down in some aspect and go faster. But there's that personal history that you can't get from a chart full of data. Wow. Yeah, I think we should back up a minute because I'm not sure that our listeners will be familiar with um, the work that you guys have all done together. So uh, maybe Dale, do you, could you give us a brief background on um, this uh, overlapping project and work that you all have with the O'Keefe uh, Museum and historic site? Sure, uh, happy to. So George O'Keefe acquired um, what was um, a, a kind of a ruin of uh, 18th century, 19th century, adobe compound in uh, 1947, I think she was able to, or December of 46, she was able to sort of complete the purchase of the ruin with the plan that she would restore that and, um, and make that um, a home. She had already purchased a home at the Ghost Ranch uh, Canyon further north from Abiquiu, but um, there were no water rights and the soil is not um, completely conducive to growing food, having a garden, um, gets considerably colder in the winter than in the valley where Pita is in Abiquiu. So um, she, had, she had seen it many years before and sort of had always on her, had her, uh, on her radar. Um, and then she began restoring the property shortly afterwards. And it took her about three years to complete um, the sort of architectural redo of um, this adobe compound, um, building uh, all the rooms back up um, with uh, ditch rubble foundations and adobe walls, sort of following footprints of existing buildings, changing some of the functions, but importantly, making it a modern structure. It's a very modern structure in the sense that um, not only is there modern conveniences like dishwasher and, and you know, uh, prefabricated kitchen cabinets and skylights and that sort of thing. But she installed huge modern windows 
um, into the structure. I mean, the the window in O'Keefe's studio space, I think is 16 feet wide, uh, a large window in the bedroom that she built for her sister, a large window um, in, the, in the kitchen area, a large window in her sort of living room seating area. So um, sort of move in modern architecture to have, have the outside visible, have the outside become part of the experience of the interior was definitely part of her program. So she finished it, finished it and moved in full time uh, in 1949. And uh, so over that time, uh, Peter's family has been involved with the planning and planting and maintenance of the garden, as well as maintaining all the exterior and interior finishes. Several of the rooms have traditional New Mexican mud floors. Several of them have a very modern cork tile floors. It was a very modern finish in 1947, along with asphalt tiles. So it's, it's you know, it, architecture, it's a really, really important, uh, important structure. But as Peta has noted, and I'm sure she can describe further, over the past 30 years, we've looked at environmental data for northern New Mexico, uh, the region essentially from Los Alamos up to where Abiquiu is. And it's very clear compared to the data, we, we've put in a weather station at the Abiquiu house so that we know exactly what the environmental conditions are. Um, and, and it became clear that the environment was playing a much larger role um, in the rate of deterioration uh, of the house, the total kinetic energy, wind speeds, the speed of uh, an impact of rain and precipitation had all increased. And so, with Michael's help, the help of Scattergood Design, um, with um, uh, structural engineers, we did a comprehensive conservation survey, uh, including hydraulics. We looked at the, um, the soil and uh, structure of the hillside, um, as well as evaluating all the, the building materials uh, to try and really understand what the preservation challenges were going to be with the house, um, given, given the changing climate, given its, its rate of deterioration. Uh, and we completed that, it was about 18 months long, and we completed that um, team conservation assessment uh, last year. Well, I'm, I'm also curious, so Georgia O'Keeffe isn't from New Mexico, nor is she, was she, before she moved there, a part of the Abiquiu community. And so I guess I'm curious, um, like about, you know, this work that's going on with this historic house that she purchased, like who's doing this work and what does the population, what is the community that already exists in Abiquiu? What does that look like? Oh, well, Abiquiu is, is a small uh, village located in Northern New Mexico. We're in Rio Riva County. Uh, the main sort of central plaza area and its surroundings is doesn't have much population, but of course, Abiquiu is spread out. There's uh, in the village and we're probably now close to 3000 people. Ms. O'Keefe, when she first uh, came out here, it was in 1929 when she came to New Mexico, actually didn't come to the northern area where Abiquiu is located 
but uh, stayed in Taos and then was introduced later to Ghost Ranch where she bought her first. And when she moved here permanently in 49, she had both properties. Abby Q eventually became her winter home and Ghost Ranch her summer home. And her findings here suited her well in the creation of her artwork. She was impressed, she said, with the lighting, mostly. It, it had the perfect light and the perfect landscape. Most of her landscape work is from Ghost Ranch, where you do see those red hills and yellow cliffs and uh, beautiful mountains. Uh, Abbey Q, as, as Dale mentioned, is a little bit different. We're in a valley, so it tends to get a little more green than I think she preferred in the summer months. But uh, we do have milder winters, which uh, work really well with her. And, and our season varies. Uh, we can get up to a foot of snow. Uh, it's gotten less through the years than when I was growing up in Abiquiu. We used to have wonderful snowfalls and that would last for days. So we'd get to play in it for quite a while. And now it doesn't last very long. So we have these dangers uh, with drought and, and fire hazards uh, throughout the summer months. Yeah, I, I, I just wanna say that before I had connected with Michael and, and sort of the engineering and, and Adobe conservation staff to do the assessment, what really sort of piqued my interest was a conversation that I had had with um, Peter's brothers. You know, I, literally, we were sort of talking about the weather and, and Peter's brother, Maggie, um, is a bow hunter, right? And he goes up into the mountain and, and he, bows, he bow hunts. He bow hunts for elk and he bow hunts for turkey. And he started talking about how, um, how the migration of the animals was changing because of the uh, increasing temperatures and where he had to go to find the animals. And sometimes they would just walk right on him, you know, in an unexpected place. And then his usual places where he was hunting, they weren't there. And then um, Peter's other brother, Mino, said, yeah, you know, um, we used to have we used to have these experiences just uh, be rock solid, dependable year after year after year. And then when they built the Abiquiu Dam, my dad used to tell me um, how as soon as the dam was built and it filled up with water, the weather pattern started to change. So that sort of generational experience and these these kind of signifiers that indicate that the things are suddenly starting to shift. You said your family is from Abiquiu Pita, but so mm -hmm. it's you and two brother, your two brothers. Do all three of you work with the O'Keefe site and you all have lived in this area your whole life, is that right? We have, our, our family's from here and the connection actually with George O'Keefe is that our grandfather was her gardener who started in the mid 1950s. Our mother was one of her housekeepers and cooks and we all worked for her. And then through the course of uh, time, we worked for her estate, her foundation, and now with the O'Keefe Museum, but we are, our, our families are from here. So we've witnessed that progression of changes 
uh, not just with how we've lived or where we've worked, but with the lives, the stories our grandparents have said uh, as to you know the, the changes that had taken place. Lack of water is the most fear I think that we have in our area because it's so important. We have an irrigation system that feeds into our gardening in, in Abiquiu, really an organization within the community. And it's natural spring water from aquifers above the mountains in Abiquiu that feeds down to a creek in Abiquiu. It's called the Abiquiu Creek. And then we tap onto the creek to irrigate our gardens, our orchards, alfalfa fields. We have a membership though to that that has been running for, for centuries. Our first acequias are dedicated way back to the 1700s uh, where people were using that type of an irrigation system for their fields and their gardens. So we know that water is, is a vital issue when it comes to sustainability. We, we lost one of our communities above Abiquiu that used to use the irrigation system when it all dried up. And they actually moved to the community where we are all now just because they couldn't sustain themselves any longer. So if, if those yeah. springs that uh, are tapped uh, to, for our use dry up, then, um, you know, we may be able to, some of us drill a well, mm -hmm. but uh, what we get is wonderful spring water that you don't find anywhere else. Uh, our community water is now that natural spring water, but of course with EPA rules, uh, it goes into a tank and then pumped into the homes. Mm -hmm. But the irrigation water is still that natural spring water that comes from the mountains. Well, so interesting. And I, you know, we've talked a bit uh, before um, about um, this kind of growing awareness among museum and heritage professionals about how institutions have some responsibility to their communities. And I think that that um, falls really uh, nicely into this social aspects of, of sustainability that Michael kind of talked about at the beginning of the podcast. And Dale, I know you've told us about a few different kind of um, ways in which the museum has this reciprocal relationship with the community. What role do you think that museums and institutions need to have in terms of supporting um, and ensuring the um, well-being of, of local communities? Well, I think, you know, the George O'Keefe Museum, for example, sort of follows O'Keefe's lead, right? I mean, she's, she's much more than simply the, the artist. Um, her, her approach to living, and um, certainly living in New Mexico and being part of the community is, is kind of the example that I think the museum definitely wants to follow. So, you know, for example, one of the biggest concerns that came out of the comprehensive conservation survey that, that Michael helped lead um, was this understanding that um, the wind velocities and the pressure changes outside the structure during a storm and inside the rooms um, those pressure differences were, were changing and that there was considerable vacuum um, and forces being applied to these very large windows. 
Um, and, and the fact was that because as Michael has mentioned, the, the adobe walls um, and the anchoring system of the window frames, these large window frames to the adobe walls is completely hidden now because of O'Keeffe's application of cement stucco in 1958, 59, Peta, somewhere in there. And, and, and so um, I got really very concerned that these major modern architectural features that O'Keeffe brought to, uh, to her home and to her studio and, and the act of bringing light into those spaces um, was in danger because we really had no visual way to see what the state of the anchoring of these large diaphragms in the wall, if you will, um, how well they're attached uh, you know, sort of to the walls. So we're, we're going to begin a project very soon this spring where we, we are using digital resistance drilling um, into the adobes immediately around the window frame and then moving out to, to measure the compressive strength numerically. Now, that's the technical end of it. But the point is that there are adobe homes all in, throughout the Abiquiu village and throughout Northern New Mexico that are in exactly the same state as we are. That is that they're traditional adobe walls, right? With windows and door frames anchored into those adobe walls that are now covered with cement stucco that, pre that prevent visibly seeing the condition of that. And if we can develop a minimally invasive technique to begin to understand that without being able to see through that cement and take all that cement off, and that there is a correlation to this testing method, we can share that with our community, right? People who are living in their own adobe homes, we can share that information, that knowledge about this technique and help them apply it to understand the, the condition of their own adobe homes throughout Northern New Mexico, Abiquiu, and, and even the whole Southwest. So that really is just an example of how we feel this community responsibility that we are yeah, we're a museum, we're an organization, we're a tax exempt private organization, but really we're a member of the community living in the same environment, facing the same problems. And that if, if we are able to gain technical information that could benefit the community, we're, we're going to use the visitor center at Abiquiu to host meetings of homeowners and help get that information out there. Wow, that is so cool these technical and scientific investigations that we do, um, you know, have in the past maybe been limited to questions of materiality or yeah. provenance or historical information or whatever, but there is this shift towards saying, we have all this um, scientific analytical equipment. We are very, we are very technically oriented field. How can we reorient our priorities to use the equipment at our disposal to, um, to investigate some sustainability related questions. And I love that you are taking this a step further and saying, how do we take this information and make sure that it's useful to our community? Yeah, because it's what we're kind of seeing here is like conservator almost as community organizer and this sort of like community of professionals that Michael described who are all working together. Um, like the end result is to provide this information to all the people of the community so that it's not just the museum that's benefiting, it's that everyone is able to preserve their home, which I think, okay, so this now gets to my question for Michael, because I think we have a little bit of, well, I have maybe more than a tell you, a background understanding of the structure. And I think not everybody 
who's listening probably knows anything about Adobe. And so can you paint us a picture? So Dale's saying there's a lot of Adobe structures that are built similarly. So the architecture of the area and its modifications um, match that of the Abiquiu house. So maybe you can describe for us kind of what's going on structurally at the Abiquiu house. Um, paint us a little picture. Um, yeah. Well, I'm going to stop short of getting into the mud of Adobe because uh, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't dare talk about it with Peter in the room. Um, but uh, I, we're dealing with a material that has very specific qualities depending on where the soil is excavated or shall we say mined. And there are traditional methods of it's, 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 it's like cooking without heat. You, you have to know the material and where it came from to make it work. And so from what we've learned, George O'Keefe relied on the community to inform that reconstruction and restoration. I say reconstruction of part of the house and restoration of what was still standing. But at one point, because that requires an annual intervention, because as a soil material, it, it erodes uh, in heavy rains uh, and the plaster finish, which is not a plaster like we think of it in a 19th century house, it's a mud plaster, uh, deteriorates and, and that has to be replenished. So at one point, George O'Keefe decided that she would take a more modern approach, which is to put a durable concrete cement stucco, not concrete, but a cement stucco shell around it. And then there was a second application. So the load bearing structure is still the adobe, the block, the blocks of dried soil and, uh, and carries it down to the rubble stone foundation that Dale talked about. But then we have this thin, thin shell cement structure and, and I call it a structure because technically it is. Engineering students in college and civil engineering have a, a competition called the concrete canoe competition where they do thin shell concrete canoes to demonstrate what you can do with concrete. Well, the stucco is like an inverted thin shell concrete canoe. It, it rests in part on the ground. It's kind of attached to the adobe through nails, um, but in some places, they have the prospect of working independently. And uh, over time, because of moisture, there's also the prospect that the soil part of the adobe begins to deteriorate a little bit. If you get a leak in the, in the cement stucco, you can't see it. And what's going on behind that shell, inside that shell, is really quite remarkable, and potentially. And my epiphany with this was that there's a remnant of the garden wall out in the garden where you can see the old wall and you can see the two shelves of the wire and the cement stucco. Wow. And you can slide your hand between them because maybe they started wow. out in contact, but, but parts oh. have. And then from, from the diagnostic standpoint, the challenge that we're faced with, and this goes to this sort of elaborate investigation that Dale described for the windows, is that we don't have anything in the way of non-invasive imaging that tells us what's going on beyond the stucco. 
if it's not in intimate contact with the adobe. Because anything that we transmit, thermal energy through conduction, ultrasonic energy, it, it doesn't transmit when it gets to that airspace. And, and that doesn't have to be a big gap. It yeah. can just be a point of no contact where there's been a little recession or a little movement. Right. And, and so we're trying to understand what's happening and monitor what's happening in the bearing part of the assembly that's concealed from view by this very, this hard casing and whether or not this hard casing starts to either pull down on the structure because it's separate or whether it actually is standing up independent of the structure as the structure starts to settle or not, not settle, but, but deteriorate a little bit. Yeah. This is, this is a really incredible issue, which is why we're trying to understand what's happening in the long term. And then you have the philosophical issues, which I'll turn over to Dale and Peter about, do you keep, keep the stucco or not? And, and I'll hand that off because, you know, as an engineer, I look at that and I say, wow, we got to figure this out. So please, <laughs> either one of you talk about the problem. Well, Peter, tell us about yeah. when she stopped painting. <laughs> yeah. Well, definitely that, that is a conundrum. It, eventually all this uh, uh, concrete uh, cement uh, on the walls will have to be taken off, but um, O'Keefe herself put in the, the, that concrete. Uh, her thought was that she got tired of repairing the adobe walls all the time. And as beautiful as it was, and we have tons and tons of correspondence where she is heartbroken that she has to cover this beautiful mud she did it for practicality reasons. And that's why I think most people in the community did as well. Where before that was a job of homeowners to do constantly. I, my grandmother did it to her house all the time. Uh, as young kids, we would help her remud the parapet, if not the whole house. But then through time, as, as the, the concrete and stucco came in, into force, it allowed people the opportunity to, you know, not continue to go through the hardship of redoing their homes all the time. And, and that's a decision definitely the museum has to make. Do we take it and leave it as adobe? Is it practical? Is it viable? Or do we take off what we have just to repair what's underneath if it's necessary and then put something over that, not necessarily concrete, but maybe something that is comparable uh, that will allow those adobe bricks to breathe? And Peter, there's, I mean, there's a technical reason as well. Not only the sort of labor, the intensive labor it takes. So Remember, we're speaking to conservators largely in this podcast. So conservators will understand the idea of a sacrificial coating, right? Yeah. That, that you, you put something else that's going to take up all the dirt and all the pollution and it's going to weather, but it protects the surface underneath. Traditional mud plaster on the exterior of an adobe building is exactly that. It is a sacrificial coating, right? right. It's made to take the energy and the rainfall and distribute it um, and allow proper 
wetting of the adobe bricks as well as proper drying. That cycling of moisture moving in and out can actually cause uh, platelets of clay particles to, to bond better yeah. and to increase in cohesive strength, right? The one of the problems was that starting in the 1950s, the source of the clay that went into the traditional mud plasters in Abiquiu ran out. It was gone. And as Michael pointed out, these, these mud plasters have very specific ratios of, of sand, loam, and clay so that they function. They adhere to the adobe wall well, they shed water well, they, they have very specific qualities. And so not only could O'Keefe sort of not keep up with the labor it took to continually put on the sacrificial coating every single right. year, but the source of that coating material was gone. And it really, it, you can't just take any clay from anywhere and make that work. Um, so in many ways, she, she had to face the practical challenge of putting another kind of sacrificial coating on the outside of that house with entirely different structural characteristics. One of her major subjects was this beautiful black door in her patio that had this beautiful mud plastered uh, wall that surrounded that black door. You could see the handprints of the people that had been putting it on and or the smoothness of it as uh, depending on how it had been. And what we have found, and, and Dale can confirm, is that once the concrete and stucco had been put in, O'Keefe, even though she still had the door as a subject matter, did not use it as much. It wasn't photographed as much. Um, and definitely, as, as we had mentioned, her letters at that time uh, show how uh, upset she was that that had to be done, but she was a practical woman. <laughs> and uh, that ran out, that, that went ahead of, of that case. But yeah. definitely uh, it, it, it felt different and it was different. It, it wasn't the, the smooth finishes that we have uh, we still have some uh, uh, of her zawans, uh, these little walkways uh, within the house that do have these adobe walls. And when you're in there, it does feel a lot different than when you are near an, uh, the cement uh, plastered wall. Yeah, O'Keefe stops painting the, the patio and the shadows on the adobe walls uh, in 1959, once the cementitious stucco is put on. And, you know, and we don't, we don't have a lot of evidence of, of how precipitous that was in her creative process. Um, but, but so it's coincidental, but um, it's, it's very clear. There's a hard stop on the paintings of the house after the cement stucco is put on. And one interesting thing is that we've got, we, we still have the original mud plaster on the inside of her garage, oh. which I think is just incredible, yeah. right? It's a completely protective space. It was never replastered. It is this beautiful pink color and this beautiful hand finish on the inside of it. And I have to say, just, you know, from an aesthetic standpoint, um, it, it creates such an inspirational 
tactile surface, uh, this monochromatic surface that is just, as an artist, it would be incredibly challenging to try to do that. So I, I want to bring up something because we've talked about the adobe and we um, and 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 the um, particularities of having the right soil and all. And we talked earlier about this institutionally, this balance between science and yeah. traditional methods. But if we go back in time and we think about the adobe, that's empirical science exercised over a long time to figure out what worked and where that vein of clay was and what was durable. So it's not to suggest that traditional yes. methods are just some sort of handcraft, yeah. but they're empirically based in science. We just have a different way of arriving at the answer. And sometimes we don't arrive at the answer because we don't look, we don't ask the right question. But, 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 you know, it's figuring out how to work backwards. It's like, it's like reverse engineering that we have in the engineering field. It, it, it should be sort of reverse science. How did the, why did, why did this work? And then applying it to sustainable preventive conservation going forward. Yeah, such a great point, Michael. I That's feel like that comes up, it's come up in so many of our episodes so far about recognizing and bringing in different epistemologies and ontologies into the practice, right? Finding, creating space, not finding space, but creating space in our community to balance out those different approaches. So um, I feel like we could talk endlessly. We could just continue this conversation for hours and I would love it. But I think maybe where I would like to wrap up is just, you know, we're talking about all these complications, right? The need to be practical, but there, of course, these are aesthetic decisions. These are historic decisions. We're privileging different um, historical moments. Are we reconstructing or restoring? And I wonder how do we find balance of this? How, how far do we take um, the sustainable thinking when we're, when we're implementing these changes, when we're sourcing materials, when we're even maybe getting out to the O'Keeffe house? Yeah. How deeply does sustainable thinking need to permeate the work that, that we're all collectively doing? From my standpoint, it is an incredibly complex problem that I don't think there's one approach for or one answer for. Uh, a friend's mother here on the Kewa Pueblo close to Santa Fe, who gave me her definition of sustainability in a conversation that was not about sustainability, but um, I think gets to the heart of it. And she said, um, people and the earth need to be good medicine for each other. The earth needs to be good medicine for people and people need to be good medicine for the earth. And, and for me, that kind of is a wonderful underlying approach to how we think about the, the site, the village of Abiquiu, the interpretation of the house and its long-term preservation. Is it, it, you know, are we doing good medicine? Are we good, doing good medicine for the, for the people living in the village uh, who also use the water, who also have adobe homes? Um, are, we, are we doing good medicine for the people who come to visit and experience um, O'Keeffe's vision of a, of a modern adobe house uh, and a creative milieu for her to literally start thinking in new ways about her, her painting and her sculpture? And, and are, we, are we doing good medicine for the plateau, the little, you know, the little plateau and, and, uh, that the house sits on and the, and the house itself? 
And I, I think that that will probably be very true for every historic site, every landscape site, and, and, and maybe even every museum collection object um, over the long term. Well said, Dale. <laughs> yeah, I love that answer. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the challenge is that not every site presents the historic continuity of the community and as Avicuda. Yeah. And that is what is um, personally rewarding for me to know that there is this, there's this lineage that's been associated with that site that's still there and understands the history even before Joe, George O'Keefe and, and, and that historic context. Uh, and to be able to interact with that community through PETA and her brothers is a pretty remarkable opportunity as you know, a fly-in consultant who gets to be, has the good fortune to be there only a few days, but to be a part of that and to be able to tap into that knowledge of the circadian rhythm of life there over the decades and centuries and to understand how it all worked um, is, is a huge opportunity. And we don't always get that as consultants. And I think, you know, for the, for the fixed, fixed cultural heritage people, the built cultural heritage people, that chance, this is, I won't say it's once in a lifetime, but it's very rare that, that we're able to make that connection to draw on the insights that it provides. And so I'll always be happy to talk to Peta. <laughs> no, to listen to her more accurately. <laughs> uh, what a lovely way to end the episode. Um, it's been it's such a pleasure to speak with all of you. It sounds like such an incredible place. Um, you know, like you said, Michael, a really like spiritual experience. I've never been. I hope to make it out there one day yeah. soon when it gets safe. No, it's really, really a pleasure. And I, and I thank Marie and Natalia, I thank you both um, for taking the initiative to begin this discussion within the preservation community and, and ecosystem. And I'm just delighted that we have uh, a moment to try and contribute to that. Hi, everyone. Thanks again for listening. We hope you got as much out of this conversation as we did. So I have a special announcement today about a panel discussion I'm moderating next Thursday, May 6th at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, virtual, obviously, on intersectional environmentalism and heritage conservation. Mana Contemporary is hosting this event, which means it's free and open to the public. So I'll be joined by three of my colleagues in heritage conservation, and we're going to talk through how our field benefits from embracing an intersectional approach to sustainability and what it means to embed this work into our community and to our daily practice. A link to the event is in the episode notes, so please join us if you're available. As always, please reach out to us with questions or feedback and subscribe on your favorite podcasting app, and we'll see you next week.